This is an ABC podcast. Batteries are under constant reinvention. They're many and varied. Are you looking for duration of charge, strength, durability? We had electric cars years ago and gave them away. Now people living on the land on top of the minerals batteries need are starting to say, hey, great for you to have the batteries, not so good for us. I'm Amanda Vanstone. This is CounterPoint. In good news, there are chances of success in reintroducing big cats to the wild in India. That would be really something. And still in India, if cows are so sacred, why do they get such a rough deal? What is Hindu vegetarianism all about? But first, a quick look at urban planning. After COVID-19, many, many Australians have realised how good it is to work from home. And many, many bosses have realised that people might actually do better work at home. Not always, but it is the case. And so now there's going to be a lot of this 50-50 stuff or some sort of combination. What does that mean for cities, though? Cities that have been planned to be full of office workers that belt downstairs and have their lunch at delis and, you know, do a bit of shopping, that sort of stuff. What, are they now empty? Planners might have met their match. I don't know. But someone who's been doing some work on this is Rachel Gallagher. She's a PhD candidate in the School of Earth and Environmental Sciences at the University of Queensland. And she's written a piece for the conversation entitled How We Accidentally Planned the Desertion of Our Cities. And she joins us now. Rachel Gallagher, welcome to CounterPoint. As COVID shown us that there really isn't an area of life that we can be comfortable with and say to ourselves, this is never going to change because well, something comes out of the blue and bang, you're into a sudden change. That's what's happened here, isn't it? Well, yes, and cities go through shocks all the time. There's plenty of research out there that shows that different cities experience different shocks, whether it's deindustrialization or climate change or since the dawn of cities, you know, millennia ago. But COVID's been a great example for us to see how quickly and how vulnerable the way we've planned our cities has become. You know, contemporary zoning, which is what guides development patterns in all of our major cities, really evolved in that post-World War II period where the proliferation of the car and people were driving from work to home. So we had these separate uses. We separated out our city. As a result, we've got these homogenous areas that are really vulnerable to decline because there's no land use diversity there. So in our research, it looked at what's happened in Brisbane across kind of six activity centres, which we'd zone them as mixed use in the hope of replicating the kind of development patterns that we see in urban environments that were designed before the car, you know, walkable. So we zone these as mixed use and we put this overlay kind of onto our activity centres. But by creating this open competition between residential, commercial and industrial development, what we've done is we've pushed out industrial where people actually physically have to go to work to make stuff we push that away and we've replaced that with commercial services which is obviously highly amenable to home-based work so what happens when you get a big shock like covid when everyone was working from home or most commercial people in commercial services or 
government administration were working from home. Yeah. We have all of these areas that were quite vulnerable because once those workers are removed, you know, there was nobody buying coffees at the local coffee shop because there was nobody physically there. Do you know, I'm about to tell you a story now. I'm meant to be asking you, but I think I'll share this one with you. There was one great speech by someone I did not like in the party room, never did like the guy, and still don't. But there's often a plea when there's a drought or something for drought assistance. And this guy got up and said, look, I'm happy for the drought assistance to be given, but, you know, people do know what country's marginal country. We know how often we're going to have droughts and, you know, they should have prepared. And there was a bit of a from the National Party. And then this guy said, and I want to talk about Abdul. He's got a deli near a factory in my electorate, but the factory closed down. No fault of Abdul's. And now he hasn't got customers. So are we going to help him out? It wasn't his fault either. It's a good point to make, isn't it, that change happens and other people get affected through no fault of their own. So mm. all the delis and maybe hairdressers and whatever else in these zones where people weren't going to work, really some of them lost their business. Mm. So what do we do? Well, our research shows that basically when you compare parcels that have an industrial zoning compared to a mixed-use zoning, so mixed-use zonings allow for as-of-right development residential, commercial, or light industry. So it's kind of open competition between all those uses. Yep. Whereas an industrial zoning, you can only have uh, an industrial use there or a use that doesn't compromise kind of future use of that parcel for an industrial use. Yes. So basically our research showed that in those industrial zoning, so places that had like a heavier industrial zoning in 1987, that had a kind of protective factor and those parcels were more likely to retain mostly light industry, we're not talking steelworks, we're talking, no. you know, bicycle repair shops or fabric printers or textile manufacturers. You know, we're not talking these kind of large, smelly yeah. industries. We're talking ones with minimal emissions, which are very compatible with residential use, for example. There was, okay, there's Frank having a cough. So those parcels that had the industrial zoning were more likely to retain that use. Whereas as soon as you put a mixed-use zone on, you know, we've got this kind of economy that values residential and commercial development above all else. And as a result, it just pushes out that industry. You're on CounterPoint. I'm Amanda Vanstone. I'm talking with Rachel Gallagher. She's a PhD candidate at the University of Queensland. And we're talking about planning, how planners can make a mistake, shoving what you and I might call light industrial out. Because that mix in there, you know, the bicycle shop repairman, etc., all that diversity adds to the richness of the environment you live in and to its resilience, for example, when something like COVID comes. It's, in terms it's of almost a, a counterintuitive thing, isn't it? I suspect mm. if you went to, you know, advanced secondary school students or first-year uni students and said, you know, what do you think about industrial zoning? Do you think it should be shoved out? They'd all say yes. But really what you're saying is keep it close in because that's where you get the vibrancy. Well, yes, and it's interesting because there's a kind of fallacy out there that most manufacturers in Australia are kind of large format. You know, they need huge space on the fringes of our cities, close to highways. That's kind of well, most of the industrial strategies of our local governments have put forward. Yeah. But when you actually look at the research, the research shows that most manufacturers in Australia are actually small businesses and they want to be close to inner city areas for the same reason that service sector employees want to be there. They want to be close to their markets, they want to be close to customers, they want to be close to where their staff, you know, and we should often skilled staff where they live. And that's some great research that's actually come out of Monash University. So 
Monash University, there was a research paper actually that interestingly said that during those COVID lockdowns, the most mm-hmm. resilient places in Australia were the ones that had a diverse employment mix. So places like Port Melbourne have a mix of production, so people that make stuff, as well as service sector and residential. They were the most resilient mm-hmm. ones during lockdowns. They retained all their jobs. So if we don't create spaces for those kind of truly mixed-use precincts, not just mixed zonings, but truly mixed-use precincts. If we don't make spaces for those in our cities, as I said before, the economy will make sure that commercial and residential development go in and industry gets pushed out. Sure. I mean, you might might create a sort of, if you like, an egg. You've got the city and you push all your, I'll call it light industrial to make it clear, the point you're making, out Mm. around the edges and strengthen all that. But when you have something like COVID or some other thing, your city gets drained of people and you've got this empty shell. That might be over-dramatising it, but, you know, I know what you mean. Or do you think planners recognise this? I mean, you must have some understanding about how the planning community look at this. Is this now a recognised thing or is this something new that you guys have found and people are still shaking their heads saying, oh, no, I don't believe that? I think that there's a misunderstanding that the role of the public planner is the public planner's role to facilitate the most lucrative use of a parcel Or is the public planner, is their role to make sure that a particular parcel is used, looking at the city as a whole in a long-term kind of vision for the city? Mm. I think that there's a bit of a, there's a bit of pressure. And as you know, yeah. Well, I think the answer belongs with the council. The planners don't tell the council what to do. They certainly give them advice. But councils need to know what you're saying so that they give the appropriate advice that they want to have a mix of activity in their area. And it has to be planned for and allowed for. Of course, it would be councils, wouldn't they? They'd be saying to their planners, hey, we don't want any of that. We just want nothing that smells of any industry at all. And be bypassing the opportunities that come from the sort of mixed use that you're talking about that includes light industrial. Yeah, and I think, as anybody knows, planning decisions are highly political. And, you know, in Brisbane, it's really, it's, in all our cities, all our major cities, Brisbane is obviously the focus of my study, but it's been really easy to concentrate new development on greenfield sites, so, you know, form of farmland, vegetation on the outskirts of our city where there's no new neighbours to complain, or large former industrial estates in our inner city where it's the same thing. There's very little neighbours to complain, or if there is, we have this kind of frame of urban renewal, inverted commas. Mm. So mm. it means that there are neighbourhoods all around our cities that aren't zoned appropriately. At the moment, there's extreme housing pressures you know, in southeast Queensland. And in my view, we need to make sure that our existing neighbourhoods, that our existing residential land is zoned appropriately before we start cannibalising in a city or even middle ring manufacturing or industry in our cities. Because there's a lot of areas in our cities, I could speak for Brisbane, that have great public and active transport infrastructure. You know, they've got rapid busway stops or railway stations yes. that are still surrounded by low-density residential housing. And nothing else. I think that you know there needs to be a broader community conversation about are these the best areas to actually facilitate this change, this you know residential development, increasing density, for example, rather than pushing out the industries that well, the jobs that make stuff and then ensure that diversity because the diversity is inherently linked with urban resilience. You know, the more diverse you Indeed. are, the more you can pivot. Oh, Rachel, we need more sensible people like you. There's too many people, this is just a rant from an old girl, too many people who think they know everything and not enough people asking questions. So there should be more people like you. And we, Rachel, are very glad you could give up some time today. 
and join us with your new baby, Frank. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Well, things change in cities, don't they? And I'll tell you what, they're changing battery use too. Batteries are changing and our view of them is changing. The world is trying to go green. Some are trying harder than others. And some are bearing the burden of doing that more than others. There may be a better example, but I can't think of one, to look at those issues than by looking at the mining for the batteries we want to have green cars. Fortunately, Ian Morse, who's a science and environmental journalist, has written a piece for Noema magazine and it is fascinating. We really are not looking at this issue. The piece is entitled, Who Gave the Battery Such Power? And Ian Morse joins us now from Seattle. Ian Morse, welcome to CounterPoint. Can you tell us what has been happening in Serbia, for example, last year? Yeah, thanks for having me. In Serbia, there has been, over the last few decades, a company that has been trying to develop a lithium mine. And it's in the western regions in Serbia, in some farmland where lots of people live. And toward the end of last year, a series of local opposition to the mine gathered a lot of national steam and created some of the biggest protests that the country has seen since the downfall of Milosevic. And it was surprising because it started as a lithium mine protest, but it also ended up being about the country's politics, about the rule of law, about the ruling political party who had ended up taking over media, taking over courts. And the lithium mine was a result of, I guess, this main political party taking over. Now, this mine didn't go ahead, but it was not going to be small. Uh, Rio Tinto the company developing the mine, said it could supply enough lithium to Europe to build one million electric vehicles a year. One million a year. And it would break up, I know that was a cartel, but you know, Australia and Chile have had pretty tight control of the majority of the market and that would spread the benefits of mining way beyond that into another country. But it didn't go ahead, did it? The people won out in the end. Yeah, so the government seemed to listen to the protests and ended up cancelling the exploration permits. And this was shortly before the April election in the country. And Mm. what was interesting as well is that there were still some pathways and loopholes that the company could use to pursue the mine in alternative ways. And it's possible that the mine could still go forward. I think there's enough opposition and enough international awareness as well as national awareness about the mine that it would be very difficult for that to happen. But Mines are, I guess, notorious for going forward without the consent of people nearby. Well, I think you've crystallised it really well in the article because you said that the media distilled this into a conflict between the benefits of clean batteries and the rights of people who live on top of the materials needed to create them. Now, that's not just people in Serbia. This problem for the people who live on top of these minerals is worldwide, isn't it? Yeah, so it's not only happening in Serbia, and I think what was so interesting, I've been studying this for a few years, is that there have been many elections 
that have been based on mines for the energy transition, so in favor of climate. For example, in Greenland, the media also dove in and created this kind of image of how will the West and China decide the fate of the energy transition by the companies that they support in Greenland and the rare earths that they may be able to extract. Similarly, in Ecuador, in Peru, in Bolivia, a lot of these places, the, I guess, mining interest, effectively the campaign tools that were used by candidates I think this is kind of a unique time for this to happen as well, because I think mining has often been something that has taken place in the shadows and the backgrounds, uh, at least for the majority of people, not for the people, of course, who live next to mines. But for mining to take such a prominent position or to be effectively center stage in some of these elections means that a lot of people are starting to interpret not only the energy transition, as a discussion about mining, but also the fate of communities and countries as a discussion about mining. Mm. Well, the World Bank has apparently made an assessment that lithium companies would need to produce 10 times the normal production, 10 times, I mean, doubling your production is hard enough, 10 times until 2050, you know, 3.5 billion tonnes of metal and all the other stuff that you need for that mining to happen, you know, the infrastructure, the roads, all that sort of stuff. Is anybody around the world looking at how to implement that? It's all very well for the World Bank to make this assessment. <laughs> but are countries looking and saying, hmm, can that happen? Can we actually do that? Yeah, I think that's a good question. And <laughs> I think maybe to begin answering that as well is that it's not just the World Bank who's making these assessments. It's also these consultancies, the International Energy Agency as well, Banks have also tried to see what they could contribute to the conversation, and often it's about forecasting what will be needed in terms of certain climate scenarios. And what's interesting is that they're all different. <laughs> they seem to be based on the same kind of either two-degree scenario, 1.5-degree scenario, sustainable development scenario, these kinds of things, but they come out with different estimates of how large a lithium mine is or how much cobalt will end up being in all the batteries that will be in the electric vehicles in a certain number of cities and with a certain number of charging ports. There's all these different factors that end up contributing to these forecasts. But in the end, what then gets pushed out is just this kind of single factor of, yeah, we're going to need 10 times the amount of lithium every year until 2050 in order to meet climate scenarios. So I think the right question to ask is, what has the response been? Because in some ways that they are created in order to get a response, they're created in order to shuffle investment in certain directions or to make some industry players realize how they need to brand themselves or where development needs to happen. I mean, the World Bank, the IAA, these consultancies, they're big names. So when industry players want to cite them, it's hard to question that. So there have been... sure. Many, many mining companies then who say, well, the World Bank said this, so effectively my mine needs to happen in order for people to live comfortably and sustainably with the earth. And mm. this kind of branding of mining as a climate savior has spread around, I mean, all over the world. You get to be in strange places with strange kinds of metals or common kinds of metals, but now because there's this rhetoric around saving the climate, 
mining companies, whereas they maybe traditionally would have said, oh, you know, like basically everything that you would ever need or everything that people want, like laptops, like power lines, they need copper, for example. Now it's copper is central to living sustainably, to making sure humans can survive. It's a bit of a turn up, isn't it? I mean, it's all very well to say we want to be green. What are we, those who want to be green, saying to the people who live on top of this stuff? This is Counterpoint. I'm Amanda Vanstone. I'm talking with Ian Morse. He's a science and environmental journalist. And we're talking about electric batteries. You know, everybody wants them, except the people who live on top of the minerals that have to be dug up to get them. You know, what about them? I knew there were different batteries. I'm not a complete idiot. But I had no idea the degree to which... Batteries are constantly innovating with material scientists. I mean, you talk about John Goodenough in the 70s and 80s discovering that particular chemistries could hold double as much charge as existing batteries. And apparently when you fiddle with what you put into a battery, which is what the scientists are doing, trying to find better combinations, you can really change dramatically the output from that battery. Yeah. And what's interesting here is also that scientists are trying to figure out how to increase certain qualities of batteries. And so that could be, yeah, how much energy is stored. It could be how quickly it's discharged, how quickly it's charged. Lots of different kinds of metals and constructions of these metals and other materials inside a battery can determine those things. And so the questions also need to be asked about what drive certain decisions within the scientific innovation there. So, for example, many of the batteries according to many headlines, contain lithium, nickel, and cobalt. These are like the three main ones, and they exist in the cathode of batteries. But what's strange is that major, major companies like Tesla in the last two years have begun to shift toward certain iron-based batteries that use iron, which is, one scientist told me, it's cheap as dirt. Iron ore is one of the most common ores around the world. It also uses phosphorus, which is in not as plentiful supply, but very, very cheap. And this is a battery that has been used in China for a long time. But for some reason, it was cast the wayside by other companies because they made the decision to have a 400-mile battery, for example. Or Certain batteries have certain qualities, and the decisions to choose certain batteries over others are not always black and white. They're not always clear. For example, if we're really trying to spread lithium-ion batteries to everyone who has a car or everyone who doesn't have a car as well, then you would want to make it as cheap as possible. But the kinds of batteries that definitely were proliferated for the majority of the development of electric vehicles were not cheap. They were very expensive. They were these lithium, cobalt, uh, aluminum, high nickel, Many of these, which required sourcing from mines with concentrations of these metals under 2% even, which means that... It's a big mining job, isn't it? Exactly, yeah. And so there's these scientific decisions that happen in the lab that are used by industry that also affect what needs to be mined. And that's also circling back to these projections of what will be needed for the energy transition. We don't know because we could make very, very different decisions regarding simply what is in the battery. I get that. Now, there's a guy called Robert Zung. He's an engineer-minded, you describe him as an engineering-minded son of a farmer. I don't know what his qualifications are, but you say he spent 20 years building this big company to get lithium-ion batteries into mobile phones. And his company, Contemporary 
Amperex Technology Cattle, you say has created more billionaires than Google or Facebook. More billionaires than yeah. Google or Facebook. And I'd never heard of this bloke or the company for that matter. What do they produce nearly all the batteries that go into phones? They produce a lot of batteries, yeah. So Robinson is definitely somebody that has been in this business for a lot longer than many of the people in the US or perhaps Australia were even conscious of batteries' role in the energy transition or their projected massive growth. So these are facts that were also cited in Henry Sanderson's recent book called Volt Rush. And Henry Sanderson was a reporter with Financial Times and is now with one of these battery consultancies called Benchmark Mineral Intelligence. And he spent a lot of time speaking with many of the people in these corporate offices who would track and project the growth of the battery market and where they would get their materials. And Robinsung stands out as one of these people who happened, I mean, in some ways, maybe he happened to be in the right place at the right time, but also Chinese regulations, Chinese policy, and Chinese business people have been creating this battery manufacturing industry for a very long time. And likely all the batteries that are in my laptop right now, in my phone, and most certainly in the majority of electric vehicles are from China and possibly from cattle as well. (laughs) Yeah. One of the things that frightened me in your article, I mean, I just thought, my heavens, I don't know that people realise this, is the motivation for deep sea mining. Mm. But you point out that the majority of the Earth's surface is in fact water outside any particular country's borders. So what does that mean? It means a single UN agency is writing the laws and regulations to allow companies to go ahead here. Now, I find that frightening. The UN agency people are not elected. They're not really answerable to anybody. And what you're telling me is they're pretty much in complete control of whether we can or cannot deep sea mine in non-territorial waters. Deep sea mining is probably the one that is solely built on the energy transition. And one of the reasons is for that is that the UN law of the sea requires that If deep sea mining were to go forward, it has to be with the understanding that it brings more benefit to mankind than loss. And the more benefit in this case is it will save us from our own carbonizing activities. So deep sea mining will, yeah, will pull up all these nodules in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. I say will also understanding that this year at some point, one of the companies involved, one of the main companies involved, pulled up polymetallic nodules from the seafloor for the first time in a few decades, confirming that their own technology works. And this is to preface the activities next year that they intend to start mining next year, or at least start the process of applying for permits next year. And that would mean maybe by 2026, these companies could start bringing up metal from the seafloor and putting them into electric vehicle batteries. Now, that is kind of frightening because we have no idea what the impacts could be. Yeah, maybe not kind of brings. Well, I think we'll leave our listeners with a quote from Marianne Paviason, who's apparently elected to Greenland's parliament. And there has been some issues there with mining. And she says, how can we call them clean energies by destroying a landscape like Greenland? and shipping minerals to the other side of the world to pollute even more. 
That's a good question. Thanks for joining us, Ian Morse. Thank you. Now for the rant. To Kathy, the lovely listener that suggested this topic for a rant. Thanks so much. The print size on many products is getting smaller and smaller. Unless you wear your glasses in the shower, you might have trouble telling which is the shampoo and which is the conditioner. Yes, yes, you can usually tell when you open them, but you shouldn't need to open it to find out what is inside. Not such a big deal with shampoo and conditioner, but what about if it's medications? With old and frail people, the risk of misreading the dosage or instructions can be much, much more serious. Now, why do they put all this stuff on labels? Well, because we demand it. Oh, they should have a label about that. You know, we've got a label about what's made in Australia, a label about how many carbohydrates are in there, is sugar, what the contents are. We keep adding stuff on. And sometimes if the label isn't bigger than the product, they can't put it all there. Well, not in decent print. So it goes down to small print. Hmm, perhaps we're just demanding too much information on products. We've gone mad. Well, it might be small news on the medicine bottle, but I'll tell you what's big news. We might be able to rewild big cats into India. Wild animals get a bit of a bad trot, actually, as we keep expanding around the globe, taking it over as if it's ours, and then regretting what we've done. Fortunately, there are some people who are trying to reintroduce animals into the wild that are now perhaps not found there in that particular country or even anywhere other than in zoos. There's a really good story happening in India at the moment, and I thought you might like to know about it. To tell us, we're going to talk to... Arti Betagiri. She's a contributor to the Lowy Interpreter and basically focuses on India. And she joins us now. Arti Betagiri, welcome to Counterpoint. And what is the story with the cheetahs? The cheetahs and India. It's a really interesting story, actually, Amanda. Cheetahs used to be native to India, but the last one was seen there about 70 years ago. And it was last seen in a photograph with a local Maharaja who went out hunting and killed three of them, and they were possibly the last three. Mm. So there's a pretty healthy and buoyant conservationist movement and uh, animal conservationist movement in India, and they decided that cheetahs should be reintroduced. Now, it's been going on for a little while. First, they went to Iran because the same subspecies of cheetah as was found in India, is found in mm. Iran, the Asiatic cheetah. And there were plans afoot to import a number of Iranian cheetahs. But in 2016, unfortunately, the Iranian government jailed the experts who were working in the program. So unfortunately, that had to be halted. So fast forward five or six years, the plans have still been afoot. And now they've managed to actually bring in cheetahs from 
much further away, Namibia, in fact. So last month, the cheetahs had just arrived in central India in the state of Madhya Pradesh and were going to be housed and looked after as they climatised for a few weeks in a city called Gwalior and eventually they'll actually be released out into the wild. And conservationists hope that they will not just kind of reinvigorate change up the food chain, but also kind of reinvigorate the local economy, help boost biodiversity and all those other elements of conservation. Sure. It must be considered a good story in India because I see in the article that they've published a photo of Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi at the release of the cheetahs into the Kuno National Park in Madhya Pradesh. So unless he just happened to be passing, it sort of indicates that the Prime Minister thought this might be a good photo op. Not that it is a great photo, the cheat is behind a whole lot of wire, but nonetheless, they've got to be reacclimatised. Is there any concern that the cheetahs from Africa have got such differences biologically that they won't settle in here? Or that the environment they're going to, in terms of what's available to feed from, is sufficiently different that they'll struggle? Look, just a new point about Modi. I don't think he's ever accidentally anywhere. So I think it was absolutely (laughs) pre-planned. And also the airlift was timed for his birthday, September 17th. So I think we can definitively say that it was very, it was absolutely kind of a, a there was an endorsement from Hmm. Modi. Look, people have been saying all sorts of things and probably chief among them is that they should have considered getting in Asiatic cheetahs because there would have been less differences. But, you know, experts have been working on this for quite a long time. I have no doubt that they were sufficiently comfortable with the cheetahs' ability mm. to adapt to the Indian environment. I mean, it's a desert region. It's very hot. It's dry. I imagine it's quite similar to, you know, the savannas of Africa. Sure. I mean, look, we sometimes can worry too much. I mean... Look at the cane toad. That wasn't from here and it's gone crazy. So there's every possibility. Um, Absolutely, sure and rabbits. Work, but there's every possibility that it will, and rabbits, yeah. Before we shift from cheetahs, do you know how fast they can run? Ah, oh, Amanda, I'll have to Google that. I'm sorry. No, don't worry. I already have Googled it. I already have. It's 110 how, kilometres how an hour, which means they can do a 100-metre dash in six seconds. Kidding so me. They're pretty I think good. that's faster than my Toyota. Yeah, well, that's why they've got him in that sort of a fenced-off area for Modi to be photographed because if there was an open space and they took off, he would not catch up. But anyway, look, let's go to the Asiatic (laughs) lions in Gujarat. Someone had a bright idea. Let's divide these up because only a few hundred, 600 remaining, and it'll be safer if they're in two spots, you know. Don't put all your pennies in one box. But the locals didn't like the idea, did they? Yeah, well, first of all, I think we need to point out that India actually has lions in it. I mean, who knew there are lions in India? But it's true. They're in the home state of Modi's, Gujarat, and in one particular region called Gia, so G-A-R. And they're actually kind of emblematic of the state, like in all the state, you know, paraphernalia and, you know, Mm. tourist brochures, you'll always see these lions. They're a bit smaller than African lions. Now, As many conservationists know, it's a little bit troublesome to have a species located in just one region. Like what if a tsunami happens? What if there's a wildfire? What if, you know, there's a particular strain of disease that could quickly wipe them out? So they had this plan to actually move a bunch of these Asiatic Gujarati lions 
from Gujarat to Central India to the same region where these cheetahs are now being located. But the Gujarati government said no. They put the kibosh on it and they said, no, these lions are like the pride of our state. We and need to keep them here. We can't <laughs> share them. So no. I think well, there are a lot of raised have, eyebrows. You might not want to share them, but you might want to save them. You might want to make them sort of safer. You're on Counterpoint. I'm Amanda Vanstone. I'm talking with Artie Betagiri. She's a contributor to the Lowy Interpreter and writes primarily on India. But this story is not really about India, although it's in India. It's about reintroducing cheetahs to India, into the wild. These things can do 100 metres in six seconds, 110 k's an hour. Talking think, cats, yeah. big cats, and other animals for that matter, being in one place or another, as you know, they don't have maps. They don't get out their sat-nav and say, uh-oh, I'm in the wrong country. So what do you do, for example, when you have regions like India and Nepal and there might be cats that want to just not want to? They do. They cross over borders as if they don't exist. So how does that work? Look, this was my favourite part of writing this particular piece. I actually pitched this originally as something on elephant early warning systems because elephants, mm -hmm. especially along that Indian Nepal border, they kind of been wreaking a bit of havoc, trampling through fields and sometimes killing mm -hmm. people they find in their paths. So there are all these kind of like very simple homemade early warning systems so people know when the, the elephants are coming. When I was researching that, I stumbled across this and I was just so excited by this particular bit of information that I found in the elephants altogether. But basically, tigers. Now, is, now, sorry to interrupt you, but it is in a, well, not a pathetic, it's a, I don't know what sort of way it is, but it is sort of heartwarming in this hard world, isn't it? The story you're about to tell, so let me shut up and you tell it. <laughs> so you might have heard of this campaign called Project Tiger or the International Tiger Project. It's actually a really, really big campaign, kind of spans multiple countries and it was set up more than 10 years ago because the numbers of tigers in India were diminishing so badly that people were really concerned that they'd die out. Now, you know, people, for better or for worse, people don't kind of care if like a little beetle dies out, but tigers, you know, they're such a majestic mm. animal and, you know, like they mean so much to people that to have tigers endangered and potentially die out is actually seen as a real blight in humanity, I think. So conservationists across a number of countries as part of these projects worked really, really hard for many years to replenish tiger stocks. You know, they tracked tigers, they set up breeding programs, you know, really worked hard to give them proper space where they weren't kind of encroaching and fighting with humans for places to live. The habitat. Well, they've done well in Nepal, haven't they? I mean, they've they promised to double it and they've actually tripled the tiger population. Yes, exactly. They did that, but they held off in telling anyone because they wanted to make the announcement this year because it's the Chinese year of the tiger. So they oh, wanted to cunning, hold off and wait till now. And it's, it's so good. As, it's as very a smart. media person, I'm <laughs> super smart. But the issue is this. Tigers don't really respect land borders. And if you're trying to count the tigers or the animals in your country and they keep crossing over the border, that's mm. a bit of a problem, especially if you're kind yes. of competing <laughs> with the country right. next door. Yeah, so, like, Nepal's like, they're our tigers. They're part of our head count. And India's like, well, they 
living off our land now. We want them. We want them in our count. So there's a bit of a rivalry there. I found that so amusing. And in the end, they just said, nope, tiger's most important. Let's make sure that they've got adequate habitats, adequate national parks and breeding grounds to just proliferate on their own. And now they've got peace parks for them. Pity we can't have them for people, but at least we've got them for tigers. That's something. I know. So peace parks, if your listeners aren't aware, they're like national parks that cross borders, like cross-border parks, I suppose. And the whole point of that is just to let wildlife live in nature undisturbed. So there's one specifically for elephants, actually, that's meant to be across India, Nepal and Bhutan. And there was an MOU signed a few years ago, but nothing more has been said about it. So maybe it's still being discussed, maybe not. Who knows? But if it happens, it'll be fantastic for all the local wildlife. Yeah, it's a good thing. And it it is all the local wildlife, isn't it? Because they've discovered in many places the difference it makes when you reintroduce wildlife. We did a story on this recently about reintroducing bison in the United States. Because once you take away a predator, you let another animal rise up and that might have bad effects for the ecology in that area, not just because the predator's no longer there, but but the one below now becomes the big cheese and that changes the whole status of how everything was and things get back into the normal balance when you have the animals that were meant to be there there. So I think it's a great job. I have to say, Artie Bettigiri, you've got yourself a good job, haven't you, writing about such interesting things. And I'm so glad that you could give up some time and join us today. We really appreciate it. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. I've really enjoyed it. And while we're in India, let's have a look at the sacred cow. It doesn't get a really good deal for a sacred animal. You've heard about cows being sacred in India, haven't you? They don't eat beef. Mm, Okay, well, there might be more to that story than you think. You know, is Hindu vegetarianism about religion or animal rights? You know, what is the story behind this? To find out, we're going to talk to Chaitanya Talreja. He lives in Mumbai. He did a PhD in economics but now works for the Tata Institute of Social Science in Mumbai. And he joins us from Mumbai. Chaitana Talreja, what is the basis of Hindu vegetarianism? Okay, so as far as I understand it, it's a choice of food, it's a diet, wherein people consume plants and milk-based products. And it's rooted in a religious understanding of purity, wherein people understand that consuming products which are coming through non-dairy-based sources are impure and therefore are going to contaminate their food and therefore they don't consume other forms of food which are derived from animals, especially meat. Mm. But does that mean that Hindus don't eat beef? As we understand that the Hindu system or the system wherein people believe that they're Hindus is based on a caste system. So there are certain castes which are called the upper caste. These are the people who don't consume beef, but there are sections of people who belong to the lower caste called Dalits. They often consume beef. 
Mm, okay. Now, what about Modi? I think you describe him as making a show of his vegetarian diet and very much encouraging schools, for example, to have no meat or eggs in their food, the food they provide to kids, that is. Does that raise a concern about whether the kids are getting enough protein? Because, as you know, if you're vegetarian, you have to make sure you do get enough protein. I think there is a concern among people that this idea is being imposed on them, given more than 70% of this country eats a non-vegetarian diet. So state actively promoting a vegetarian diet is considered to be non-democratic. And there are some voices that say that, okay, there are also concerns about the lack of protein. But in general, I mean, this is more political in nature. The idea of nutrition is something that can be researched upon. Mm. Now, when you were talking about the higher classes, the upper castes, that is, not eating beef, but the lower ones, yes. What about the highest caste, the Brahmins, that supervise these animal sacrifices? Didn't they sort of hang around after the sacrifice and get the best bits? Yes. As I understand from Dr. B.R. Ambedkar's work, in one of his books, The Untouchables, who were they and where they came from, he speaks that historically Brahmins used to consume all sorts of meat, different sorts of varieties of meat and even supervise these sacrifices. But there was a time in history where there was a conflict between the Vedic culture and Buddhism, where Buddhism came up with this idea of egalitarianism. And in a bit to undermine Buddhism, Brahmins adopted vegetarianism in this process. Mm. You're on Counterpoint. I'm Amanda Vanstone. I'm talking with Chaitanya Talreya, who lives in Mumbai. He works at the Tata Institute of Social Science, PhD in economics. And we're talking about cows being sacred, Hindu vegetarianism. You know, don't get muddled up with why that's happening. It's not about animal rights. What you'll often hear, Chaitanya, in the West is, well, the Indians consider cows to be sacred. But, as you say, they're used in ceremonies for ritual slaughter, if you like, but also probably some of the hardest done by animals in India. So how does that turn out? If something's sacred, you know, why do they get such a rough deal, for example, in the dairy industry? Okay, so this is actually the irony that in India, the notion is that Indians have concern for animals and especially India is a vegetarian country. So there is a sense of this idea that they look at animals with a lot of kindness and compassion. But this is in contrast with the large dairy industry that exists in India. And, you know, here is the relationship between the dairy industry and that they consider it sacred, is that Hindus consider cow as holy and that becomes a justification for exploiting the cow. So it's the holiness is rather a tool that exploits the cows in that sense. You wouldn't really want to be holy then, would you? Is there some sort of a legal industry going on in India in terms of the supply of cow's meat to people? So in India, cow's meat is banned in several places, but there are certain states and regions where state governments do not impose such bans. But in many states, there is this ban that exists. But there is no ban on buffalo meat. So India is a very large ex exporter of buffalo beef which is also an animal which is a part of the dairy industry. So since buffaloes are not considered sacred, 
people are not penalized for consuming that. Hmm. Okay. Is there much of an issue at all in India about the welfare of dairy cows as there is in Australia? I think there will be varied opinions on this and various observations. So depending on where those calves are, who is raising them, this might change. But in general, in larger sense, obviously this is how the logic of dairy industry works because it's not profitable to raise calves for the farmer. And often a lot of farmers who are in the dairy industry are also marginal farmers. So they do have to dispose the calves. Chaitanya, I've never eaten buffalo meat. As you say, India is the largest exporter of buffalo meat internationally, but I've got no idea what it tastes like. Have you ever had buffalo meat? I'm assuming it's a bit like cow's meat, but maybe not. I don't know how it is like because I don't consume meat. I'm a vegan, mm-hmm. so I'm not aware of that. Well, you and I are both um, unsure of what that means. Now, do you think that equating the vegetarianism of Hindus with veganism trivialises animal rights because people just don't seem to understand why some Indians are vegan and it's not an animal rights issue. Do you think they all go into the same melting pot and get lost? That is what ends up happening here is that in India it is a special case also because of the history of Hindu vegetarianism in that sense because there are minorities and there are people who belong to marginalized communities that consume beef as such. They consider consuming beef as an idea of resistance to Hindu vegetarianism, right? So in this, if veganism emerges as an animal rights movement, it's rather seen as an extension of Hindu vegetarianism, not an individual movement drawing attention to the rights of animals as such, which is now being drawn attention to globally. So Mm. in India, it becomes very difficult to talk about animals as sentient beings as such because of the political atmosphere that is there. Mm. Chaitanya Talareja, thanks very much for joining us from Mumbai today. Sure. Thanks a lot. It was great. That's the program for this week. Thanks for joining us. I hope you join us again next week when, yet again, we will have something different and interesting, not front-page stuff, not the normal blah, blah, blah. Until then, it's Amanda Vanstone saying not blah, 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 but bye, bye, bye. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.